passage of the Music Modernization Act, or the MMA, will create a lot of changes in the music industry. On today's show, we talk about some of those potential changes, as well as other legislative challenges the industry might pursue now that the MMA is law. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk about what's coming up next for the music industry following passage of the MMA. It's all coming up on the future of what. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. I'm talking to Kay Hanley and Michelle Lewis of Sona, the songwriters of North America. Ladies, welcome back to the future of what. Thanks for having thanks. us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Hey, so MMA got passed. <laughs> Let's just start there. You guys really worked hard on that. That was a big deal for you. So tell me what that means for Sona and for songwriters in general. Let's just say, on the one hand, it's a first step. I mean, I hate, it was so much work, and to say it's a first step is a little deflating, but it's a big first step. I think on the performance side, as the licensing deals come up, you know, new deals that will be made will be more in our favor, and we'll start to see a bump in our performance royalties. And then on the mechanical side, you know, it's a bit of a whole new world, like the MMA enshrines a mechanical within a stream. So we're going to start to see mechanicals coming back to our publishing side. And so publishing companies and our self-publishing, you know, entities will get a raise as well. And for people who don't know what a mechanical is, which I really didn't for most of my career as an artist and as a songwriter, a mechanical royalty is something that was attached to the sale of an album. So that was how songwriters historically got paid. An album got sold, and if they had a songwriting credit on it, they would get a mechanical royalty every time that composition was reproduced and sold. So as soon as you know, streaming became the model, songwriters were seeing huge dips in their royalty statements because there was no mechanical royalty coming back to them once sales started to drop. So the fact that we're migrating a mechanical over from album sales to, to a stream is a pretty big deal. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a huge deal. I think one of the most important questions that I have for you guys, because you're really uniquely situated to talk about this, is the whole thing about, you know, my understanding when we went through the MMA process and everybody sort of had their two cents and, you know, certain people weren't 100% in love with it, but everybody compromised and we really did come together as an industry in a very unique and special way and we're all very happy about that. But I think one of the issues, one of the big issues is because there's now this mechanical royalty for streaming, which previously didn't exist, you kind of need, as a songwriter, to be 
really on top of it to make sure that someone is collecting those mechanical royalties for you. Now, does that mean as a songwriter that you must be signed up with a publisher or can you be self-published? Like how do you, how are you guys making sure that songwriters understand how to collect these new royalties? Funny you should ask. (laughs) There's going to be a board called the MLC. An entity called the MLC, the Mechanical Licensing Collective, and then that will be governed by a board of publishers and songwriters. Right. Right. Yeah. And like Sound Exchange, you know, you don't have to be signed to a label to get paid from Sound Exchange. It's going to be sort of, I'm hoping, you know, it has to get built, but we're hoping that it will be relatively easy and clear process for songwriters to register with the MLC and they'll collect and administer their publishing in a relatively streamlined, transparent way with pretty low overhead. You know, that's the upside of it being a government-regulated entity is it can't be a for-profit entity. It will be a nonprofit, and so it will be kept kind of, you know, no one's getting rich (laughs) off of running the MLC. Except for Um, hopefully songwriters. (laughs) Exactly. Except for songwriters, right. Right. Well, no, I mean, the MLC itself is not being created to become a money-making entity. It's really to... It's, a, it's like an, a PRO, you know, it's, it's basically to gather and administer the new streaming royalty. Right. And SoundExchange does provide us with a very good model because over the last 10 or 12 years, whatever, since they, it was created, it is a not-for-profit and it also has lowered its administrative rate, you know, sort of over time. Yeah. So it is becoming cheaper and it is becoming more efficient. I'm hoping that because of sound exchange and because of the experience we had with the master side of the the performance royalty, that people will get it better when this MLC comes online yeah. and realize that they have to sign up. Because, you know, in the very beginning of sound exchange, people were like, wait, what? You have money for me? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not going to put right. my social security number into your website. I know. <laughs> I, know I know. I think, we, and also, you know, think about when that was created, it was, you know, before all the privacy and data issues that have been so in the zeitgeist. So, you know, of course, like there's going to be, well, there's going to be like more education and less education. Like I think everybody now knows, like this is what you do, but then we're going to have to really work on an information campaign of just letting our community know that this exists, how to make it work. I mean, we're talking about doing town halls. We're talking, you know, there's going to be a public website with information about it and also how people can apply to be on the board. I mean, this is not like a backroom deal. But to be on yeah. the board of the MLC, it's actually going to be an open process. Like any songwriter who earns royalties in the United States who is self-published can apply to be on the MLC. That's really that's really great. And I think this is also one of those things where the industry is going to come together to help songwriters figure this process out because there's yeah. a, been a lot of talk in the last couple of years. I mean, really, this is... If there's one word in the last two years that's on everybody's tongue, it's metadata. Yeah. yeah. And the, the basic, you know, what is metadata? Well, metadata is just your information. It's just, you know, who wrote the song? You know, who was the engineer on the project? Who produced it? You know, these these sort of details that managed to slip our minds. And I know that, you know, all of us on this call have been in bands, but I was thinking the other day about, you know, when I recorded the records that I recorded, which 
were like, I guess the late nineties. I could not tell you the name of the studio we recorded in. I can't even remember the guy. Like I remember the producer on one of the records, but I don't remember which one he was producing. Like, oh my God. Right. It's ridiculous. Who were the writers within the band that did each song and right? I mean, that's still an issue. And, you know, that that's still a front that we haven't tackled yet. And that Music Modernization Act doesn't really wrap its arms around the metadata issue. So, you know, that that's still a battlefront. Yeah. But that's sort of, it's like, I think we have to bring that battlefront to the people, right? We have to let artists understand and songwriters understand that this is, you know, we, we have to be in charge of our destiny. And I think our biggest obstacle is just going to be sort of like how much fun it is to be in a band because when you're having fun you know it's really remember back in the 90s when we were all in bands and hung out with bands and and it was anathema to consider the business side of the music business right I don't think that artists and writers really feel that way anymore I think the digital revolution has emboldened and empowered artists and writers to think of themselves as small business owners in a way that we didn't think of ourselves, or I'll speak for myself. I didn't think of myself as that. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, It was like, leave the business pot to the bean counters, you know? And I don't think people feel that way as much anymore. So that will be helpful to artists and writers moving forward as we, you know, like Michelle was saying, the MMA is in, unbelievably positive first step for artists and writers, but it's a launching point for for all of these other issues that are really important. It creates language that we didn't have before within the law, and that will be really, really helpful framework moving forward for all of us. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. Now, I went and looked at your website, and I saw that there's more on the table, though, for you guys. What are you working on right now? Oh, boy. <laughs> so this is where, like, my eyes glaze over, but I'll, I'll try and, you know, recap it in a way that I don't get bored. So whenever a law, a new law is passed, like a big new law that changes law, the American Law Institute does a restatement. Basically, they kind of do the cliff notes of that law for their client, you know, so they can get that word out to their clients. And so right now, so, so the MMA passed. And so now the ALI, the American Law Institute, is hard at work. You know, they're talking about their restatement of copyright. And just so happens that like five of the attorneys or law professors who are working on this restatement are copy left. Do you know what that means? No, tell us what it means. What is copy left? <laughs> It's bad. It's bad. (laughs) It's bad. It's basically that sense that, like, it's that public knowledge framework of copyright should not be uh, overly protected or even protected at all. It's like it's for the public good to share work. And, you know, they're coming from a place of textbooks and pharmaceutical patents and things like that. And so in this very sort of sneaky you know, end run kind of way, these attorneys are trying to reframe the copyright law that was just passed to suit a more copyleft agenda. 
Did I put that right, Kay? Yes. And I feel like we've, you know, we've seen this a lot in the last 10 years at least. And and when you dig enough, you always find that that's funded by Google. Of course. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's always, yeah, it's always Google. Yeah. So you know that. Okay. Because Google would love it if there was no more copyright. Yeah. Because just for listeners who are not clear, you know, if there was no copyright, Google could, would never have to pay a cent. They could just, you know, do what they're currently doing happily. How much money yeah, it's like- power does a company need? <laughs> and in the case of Google, I mean, I think the need is bottomless. Right. They want everything for free and they want all the, it's it's just, it's nuts. So the, this copy left idea is not new, but it takes on particular importance at this moment when we are trying to protect copyright law to have a new attack on it from the copy left is it's scary. Yeah. And, and we're exhausted. Yeah. We're so tired. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we're like, we're like, we're still writing songs. We still have, you know, delivery deadlines. <laughs> yeah. We have jobs. Like we write songs for a living. I mean, we, this is all volunteer. This is all, you know, the extra time that we spend, you know, lobbying and advocating and informing and doing all that stuff. It's all done like in our free time. And so when the bill finally passed, you know, when it got signed by the president, which is another story. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we were like, fun one. that was weird. We're done now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, okay, phew. Now let's do a victory lap and like get to work of informing songwriters how they can use the bill and what the MLC will mean for them. And you know, throw some parties and some town halls to, like, get the word out, you know, and kind of, you know, the fun sort of PR messaging stuff that that songwriters are actually good at because we're good at sort of boiling things down to soundbite or a hook, you know, like we, we're we're kind of naturals with that. So, mm-hmm. so that's what we were kind of hoping, you know, hoping to move on to and then this kind of like legal stuff comes through and I get thrown out of and I am out of my lane. I mean this is not my lane. Like mm. I oh my God. And I don't you know, it's the last thing I want to deal with. Right. Absolutely. Well, I feel like now more than ever, right? I mean, we're in this crazy moment in American history where greed has just like seems to have won. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we are like the little the little guy trying to push the boulder up the hill just over and over and over again. Oh my god. And I feel totally. like that's our job right now is we just have to keep pushing the boulder because you know, otherwise they win. And it's like we're back to the okay. days of Gordon Gecko, like where yeah. greed is good, that whole speech. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. No and we you know, we had this win because there was a deal on the table, you know, it's not like this is all for the good of songwriters. I mean, this was to sort of like free up the work so that DSPs, you know, the digital service providers like Spotify and and Pandora and Apple and Amazon could make money with with the music community, right. you know. Instead, instead of just on, on the music community. <laughs> right. right. Right, exactly, exactly. Because we were gumming up the works, you know, the lawsuits and the public shaming was definitely having an effect. And so it was kind of, I think at some point they just kind of, you know, at the beginning of drawing up the legislation, you know, they had kind of cried uncle a little bit because they had public offerings to do and things like that. So they, you know, I think that's what brought them to the table. It wasn't out of the goodness of their hearts. 
But we came together on this deal. We were able to sort of unite and now move forward. And there is this sort of unanimity we have with the digital services. Like we're friends with Spotify now. You know, we want them to succeed. We want them to scale. We want them to lay the crap out of our songs because hopefully we'll get to participate in that a little bit now. So, you know, we were, like I said, we were pretty ready to like party and run with this. (laughs) And then another, you know, meteorite gets thrown into the pool. Yeah, well, no rest for the righteous, right? That's correct. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) I'm putting that out there. All right, well, Kay Hanley and Michelle Lewis, I really appreciate you ladies coming on The Future of What again. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having us, and thanks for your interest in this subject. It's so important. That was Girl Germs by Bratmobile. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Larry Miller of NYU. Larry, welcome to The Future of What. Thanks, Portia. Great to be back. Yes. Great to have you again. So you have written an op-ed for Billboard entitled Terrestrial Radio Ducks Music Modernization Act, but still must face the music. And I think yes. it's important to also note that when the, the big legislation that was before Congress, before the MMA came up, was an act called the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act. And that was really centered mm-hmm. on this issue of the performance right in the U.S. And in its most recent format, the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act included the AMP Act and the Classics Act, which is the pre-72 Copyright Act. Both of those were folded into the MMA. They were removed from, you know, or or basically what happened was Fair fair Play, Fair Pay turned into the MMA, but it did so by having the terrestrial royalty taken out. And basically the entire music industry came together and agreed we're going to work on this MMA together, but we're going to allow this terrestrial performance royalty to be taken out. 
And my understanding is that that is largely because the broadcasters are so powerful that we didn't want to potentially upset the entire apple cart just for this one additional piece of legislation. But now that the MMA has passed, we're in a very interesting new position because what kind of happened was we we ended up, you know, it is a very impressive place. You know, we have come to consensus in the music industry in in a very real way and it's fragile, but it is nice to have, you know, a moment where, you know, every single person's exact needs have not been met, but the the whole is definitely more cohesive than it was before. It's an extraordinary moment and as an observer and sometimes a public policy critic when it comes to music rights and especially digital music rights. It is the MMA an extraordinary accomplishment, and what I am sure happened is that uh, is that over a year ago, the various parties sat down to see if there uh, could be a deal as part of this omnibus legislation that has now become the MMA, and although there are principles on all sides who I think will want to see something happen in the next several years. It was just not going to happen this year. And so it was a pragmatic decision, really, to proceed with the MMA and see if we could make that become law and choose to fight the battle over the terrestrial radio exemption another day. Let me ask you, because I think one of the best parts about your op-ed is that you talk specifically about the broadcasters not wanting to create a terrestrial performance royalty and sort of standing firm on that point has actually had an unintended consequence to the broadcasters themselves, which is that they, as you say, underinvested in digital radio, which was something that they could have gotten behind in the early days. But there is, in fact, a performance royalty for digital radio play. And I think that you're right that the broadcasters held back in that because they didn't want to have to also pay that royalty. So do you want to talk about that a little? Indeed. In fact, if you were sitting at the big radio convention, the NAB radio convention, let's say 20 years ago, and you could see the writing on the wall, right? The satellite radio was starting. The internet was starting to support decent quality audio broadcasting. And although Pandora didn't exist 20 years ago, the ability to put radio signals on the internet did. And it didn't take a tremendous amount of imagination to think of a day in the not-too-distant future when every audio service in the world would be on a theoretically you know, level playing field. And that when that day came, we were going to finally discover how strong and powerful and resilient radios, strong and powerful and resilient local brands, their, their, their call letters and their station identities, and in fact, their relationship with their listening audiences really truly was when there was real competition on the same platform. And I kind of think that radio listening in the car in particular was a kind of a marginal line, if you will, for the radio industry. It was a kind of a walled garden with a really high wall. You know, that is where most radio listening 
happens. And for many, many decades, most Americans were, were perfectly content having radio in the car. And, you know, eventually we had tape players and CD players and so on. But the moment when the first auxiliary jack that plugged your smartphone into the car became kind of a, a no-brainer thing for many people to do. The idea of being in the car and having your audio choices unbundled from what was happening on AM, FM radio was something that was going to be really compelling for many, many people. And so now, Smartphones are well penetrated in the United States. The vast majority of the cars on the road have an auxiliary input jack. Most drivers know how to use them. And in fact, for several years now, all of the new cars coming out of the plant don't require an auxiliary jack at all. Of course, we've got Bluetooth coming standard in most cars being made today. And so between satellite radio which is a subscription service that something like 35 million people pay for. And all of the services that we love and have customized on our phones, that all of a sudden that resilience that radio was able to enjoy for you know nearly a century has eroded, you know, to the point where it may be time in the, I hope, not too distant future for the music industry and the broadcasting industry to get together before things get, get any weaker, I think is the word, for the radio business. But, you know, having said that, to be fair, radio still reaches 93% of the adults in the United States every week. And there is no medium on the face of the earth that has remotely near that kind of reach. But you would have to be a recluse or somebody who has not spoken with a teenager in the 21st century to recognize that there's a big difference between reach and engagement. Right. And for you know my observation and I'm sure yours too is that is that engagement with radio as a source of music discovery and consumption is just not what it once was. Right. And it's also fair to point out that other aspects of things that are happening in the business uh, point that direction. For example, SiriusXM's acquisition of Pandora just a couple weeks ago. How about that? Why would they do that? Well, they're trying to get into the auto market. You know, they're they're clearly trying to get themselves into cars. And, you know, a lot of people pay for SiriusXM in cars, but still, Pandora sort of paved the way to put internet radio in a lot of cars. Fair enough. And Pandora has a long way to go to get really good at getting people to pay for its service. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, most Pandora listening, well over 90% of Pandora listening is monetized through ads and not by subscribers. Although, as I say, Pandora is getting better at it, but SiriusXM is, is already really good at that. So there are, are benefits on both sides of that one. Absolutely. Beyond that, you know, super curious to see what happens to iHeartMedia after they emerge from bankruptcy next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, another thing to just throw into the mix is, as you say, it's hard to make a super strong argument that radio's dominance is, is totally collapsing because it's not really totally collapsing, but it's certainly threatened in a way that it has never been threatened in the last, you know, 95 years or something. Fair enough. But what is truly interesting for 
the music industry is that, you know, besides the amount of money that would be put into the ecosystem if terrestrial radio were required to pay a performance royalty, is that it would unlock the monies that are being held for us overseas. That's the part that people, I mean, because America is a net exporter of culture, so much of the music that's played around the world is American music, but th those performance royalties never come to us because we don't have a reciprocal agreement. That's exactly right. You know, the lack of a reciprocal agreement that that looks and feels and works, much like the way that uh, recordings are licensed for radio in the rest of the world, is keeping every American performer and record company from being able to collect those royalties in virtually the entire rest of the world. And so, you know, labels and performers will will benefit, you know, not only on a go-forward basis and here in the United States, but also whenever American music is played around the world. Exactly. So looking forward, what do you think we are going to see in terms of legislation in the future with regard to a terrestrial performance royalty? Do you think we're getting one? Well, before there is legislation, there needs to be a general agreement that there is a reason to sit down and talk. And although there is desire on both sides to have this happen, at the end of the day, it's going to be about what the rate should be. Will there be credits applied against a new terrestrial right that apply to digital music royalties? And over what period of time would this be potentially phased in? And I'm not suggesting, and really I have no special visibility into exactly how far apart the parties are from what I understand having spoken with parties on both sides, is that there is cause for optimism that in the foreseeable future, that the parties will will get together and try to hammer out the terms of an agreement, you know, it's unlikely to happen in the immediate future. And so um, I'm not wildly optimistic that this will happen in 2019, but uh, over the next several years, I think that there... Uh, you know, that there's, you know, reason to believe that enough sensible people exist on, on both sides in order to bring about a new way for radio to pay for the public performance of the music that it plays in the United States. So I guess in a few words, yes, I see this happening in our lifetime and not on the distant horizon, but over the next several years, this remains more of a possibility now than at any time in our lifetimes. Well, Larry Miller, thank you so much for joining me once again on The Future of What? Glad to be here, Portia. Thank you.
That was Without Applause by Horsefeathers. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at merchtable.com. You're listening to The Future of What? After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Mike Huppy of SoundExchange. Mike, welcome back to The Future of What? Portia, always a pleasure to be here. Love the show. Yay. Well, we love SoundExchange, so it's a mutual admiration society. So today, we are talking about next steps now that the MMA has passed— you know, what does this mean for the music industry and what does this mean moving forward for us in terms of what the next legislative agenda? I've already spoken to Larry Miller, who did an op-ed in Billboard about next steps for fair play, fair pay. And I also want us to touch at some point on the question of metadata, because that's definitely by far the hottest topic in the music industry right now. So do you want to just dive in wherever you want? Sure, absolutely. So what's next? Obviously, MMA has passed, but there's still a lot of implementing that needs to be done for the Music Modernization Act. Some of the things were effective immediately and happened immediately. For instance, probably one of the most immediate money flows that's going to go up as a result of the MMA is the pre-72 money. So people are going to start seeing that money fairly quickly. But other parts of the MMA are going to take you know, several years to implement, especially the mechanical licensing collective that's being created to help administer all these mechanical rights. So you're going to hear more about the MMA and how it gets implemented over the next several years. But obviously, the MMA was just a first step. It was not everything the industry needs or wants, but it was a good step. Definitely. And so when you say that we're going to see you know, money coming in immediately from the pre-72 because of the class exact portion of the MMA, because sound exchange, you guys are already set up to start paying those royalties, right? Absolutely. And you know, in a nutshell, the MMA is, as I'm sure you know, and from talking to other listeners, it's a pretty complex piece of legislation with a lot of qualifications and such. But at a very high level, Pre-72 tracks were not being paid the same way everything else was because of this anomaly in federal law. And the MMA fixed that by saying, look, if you're going to stream on one of these digital radio platforms, you have to pay for pre-72 just like you do for post-72. And we are ready to pay that out and have been paying that out from some services for, you know, for years. Right. So there will be no interruption there for sure. Right. So I understand you have an op-ed coming out in Billboard tomorrow. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure, I do. SoundExchange, as well as a lot of other folks in the music industry, have been pushing for a performance right over FM radio, which we can talk about. But as, it, as we've said before, you know, this goes back decades. And one of the early, early artists who pushed to try to right this wrong was Frank Sinatra, actually, the chairman of the board. In December of 1988, 30 years ago, December 12th, Frank Sinatra actually sent out letters to several top-level artists to try to get them to sign on to this cause to bring terrestrial radio rights to performers. And tomorrow is the 30th anniversary, December 12th, 2018. So we will be pushing that message out on the anniversary of Frank's message. And obviously, needless to say, you know, the need for this is even more 
prevalent now than it was 30 years ago. Right. And how do you feel about the likelihood of, you know, because I feel like there's an argument to be made that, you know, we need it more now than ever, but there's also more possibility that this could happen now than ever before. Yeah, well, first off, the fact that we need it more than ever is is hopefully one thing that'll push it along. And part of the, you know, the reason we need it is listening used to be just the thing that led to a sale, right? You had stuff on the radio or you did other things to expose people to music and they would then go and buy a 45 or a 33 or a CD or whatever it may be or download. Now that so much of the industry revenue is listening, I mean, that is the revenue event. You know, when it hits your eardrum, that's the thing that we have to learn to monetize. In fact, last year, 75% of U.S. recorded music revenue came from streaming, not from downloads, not from sales of CDs or vinyl. It's streaming. So the thing that used to be promotional is now the thing is almost the whole kahuna. Right, right. (laughs) It's not totally the, the whole kahuna, but so that's one reason why it's ever more important. In Frank Sinatra's day, yeah, it, it would have been good to be paid for listening like everyone else in the world, but at least you had significant sales and other sources of revenue. And now if you're a performing artist, streaming and the act of listening is what, what earns a huge chunk of revenue. Absolutely. And also, you know, another reason we hope there's we're closer to a solution is I think many in the broadcasting community are starting to realize they've got to make this transition to digital. You know, if A lot of people still listen to FM radio, no doubt about that. But when you look at where things trend, you know, for instance, listening to AM, FM radio among teens age 13 and up has declined by 50 percentage points over the past decade. Whoa. Larry Miller may have told you that. Or when you talk to folks, and especially the younger demographic, about how they discover music, you know, music discovery, AM, FM is not at the forefront of music discovery anymore. It's a lot of other streaming platforms. For instance, the percentage of young listeners age 20 to 24 who say they discover music from FM radio is down to like under 20%. Whoa. Yeah. I'm not surprised, though, to be honest. Right. And, you know, radio knows that and the broadcasters know that. So they have to be thinking about how do we convert to digital if they, you know, don't want to become the blockbuster video of the music industry. (laughs) How do they is stay relevant and have their successful business model, they have to convert to digital, have to convert to a streaming platform. And that's why, you know, we've been talking to them, trying to figure out, is there a a way for both of us where, you know, we, we can be better off and collect this royalty that they collect around the rest of the world. And they can be better off because we work with them as business partners to help them transition to the digital age. Right. Absolutely. So that's another reason. And obviously the success of MMA People in the industry and even outside of the industry see what can happen when the industry pulls together and joins their voices. I mean, the MMA was an amazing, amazing example of industry cooperation. Yeah. I mean, this is a really unprecedented moment for us. What do you think is going to come of this? Like, do you think we're going to be able to sustain it? I hope we can. You know, what what I've talked to a lot of people in the industry about is, you know, let's use this as an energizing point. You know, if if we all just think, oh, great, we passed MMA and we pack up our bags and we kind of be on our way. Well, then it'll be a great victory, but it'll be just that, you know, okay, we did something in 2018. Isn't that great? I'm hopeful now that the creative community has gotten a taste of the success they can have. I hope the momentum keeps going on this and other issues. You know, there's obviously the performance right over radio that we're talking about. 
but there's other issues out there too that are that are gross inequities in the system. The stuff that's happening in Europe with you know with Article 13 and the safe harbors, and you have things around the consent decrees if you're a songwriter or a publisher. So I'm hopeful we'll be able to to sustain this. In the Congress coming in, it's no shock to anyone that they you know, they're, they may be distracted by some other things happening when the new Congress comes in. <laughs> so we're hopeful to, to sustain it. But so you know, it's partly a grassroots effort. It's partly education effort, and it's also working with the broadcasters to have them realize their most productive future is in working with us to try to do the transition. Otherwise, you know, the terrestrial radio industry at some point is just gonna. I mean, it's already in, de- in decline. It's already less of a place that people discover music. It's already m- much less important to the younger demographic than it was 30 years ago. And, you know, if they, want, if they want their investment in their business model to continue to thrive, they have to make this conversion. Right, because, you know, as we're all learning in spades, it's all about money all over the ecosystem that we live in. And if they lose, you know, if, if terrestrial radio loses advertisers to the digital space, clearly, you know, that's not going to work for them either. Absolutely. And, you know, they see the trend. I don't, I don't mean to imply that they don't see the trend. I think if you were to talk to broadcasters, they would recognize that they're losing the dominance in the dashboard and they're worried about the, you know, the phone that everybody carries with everything they need in that phone. So they see the trend. They're, they're smart business people and always have been. So. Yeah. That was Garbage People by Wimps. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. 
Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Mike Huppy of SoundExchange. Well, I'm glad you brought up Article 13 because that sort of opens up another avenue that I wanted to talk to you about, which was, you know, I feel like we're poised to really start to have a fight about copyright in this country and the rest of the world. What do you feel about that? We are poised to have a fight. Well, we've, we've been having that fight for, for years. We have, it's true. <laughs> Especially as, as Google is obviously a, a big participant in the Article 13 fights. A lot of people are probably having flashbacks to several years ago. SOPA and PIPA, remember that? Oh, yeah. You know, SOPA sort of was a big wake-up call at the power that the tech community can have, or as I call it, SOPA residue. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> Ha-ha. Dad joke. And what's happening in Europe, some people might say, well, that's Europe, that's not the U.S., why does it matter? The fact of the matter is, if you have a company like Google or any other big global company if you can get enough of the planet to have them make changes, we can all benefit, right? So there may be fights along this line that get engaged in the next Congress, but really over in Brussels right now is where all eyes are focused as they go to the next chapter in, in the fight to get Article 13 implemented. Absolutely. And, and the pitch is if we can get enough of Europe to force a global brand to make certain fixes, we'll all benefit because they, they typically – you know, are going to want to have one global approach to, to many of the ways that they operate. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's sort of the shining hope that we have. I was recently on a panel and someone was asking about this and I, I said, you know, I honestly feel like this is one of those places where we actually have to have a legislative solution in order to force this monolith company to behave properly with regard to artists and labels, because it's just... You know, we've had the free market place, you know, and, and the DMCA, which was the settled law, you know, since 1998. And this has been the result. And so it's like, we're going to need, we need bigger guns. In other words, we need legislative guns, I think, to make this work for us. Right. And even the DMCA, you know, was, it was a great, uh, highly negotiated piece of legislation back in 98. The way it's been interpreted in the case law as it's unfolded hasn't really done everything that our industry thought it would do. It, it's not exactly, you know, the complete solution. But what, you know what performers and creators and songwriters, what, what everyone needs to remember is, you know, that these platforms are very popular. People want exposure, right? And they, there's an immense pressure. It's better to be on these platforms than have your stuff streaming on this platform than not. But allowing these entities to make the money they make off other people's content who are just desperate to be heard. I mean, it's, it's just a new form of abusing creators, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's newer and bigger and more sexy and tech driven, but it's no different than, you know, the abusive practices from whatever, however many decades ago that some people exercised on creators taking advantage of them. It's just the 21st century version of it. And that's what creators need to remember. Yes, it's great to have exposure and it's great to be out there. But if you're propping up a platform where they are making hundreds of billions of dollars and you're seeing virtually none of it, that's, that's not a sustainable platform for the creative class, right? Absolutely. So let's pivot quickly to metadata. I mean, SoundExchange is, at this point, the monarchs of metadata. You guys really have, have done a great job with it. But I think it's such a... Monarchs of metadata. Yeah, you should use that as your new tagline. Yeah, as a new tagline. I assume you mean regal and not, not the butterfly. Yeah, exactly. 
but but it's become something where where you know everyone in the industry is is slowly realizing that metadata is the future because of the fact that you know like you alluded to earlier you know once upon a time people artists made records and and records sold in record stores and and they were paid their royalty and that's how they made money but now the income streams are so diverse they're all over the place and they're you know they're matters of fractions of pennies coming from a you know, hundred different sources. So metadata is crucial for people who want to actually get paid for their art. So what's coming down the pike for us with regard to metadata? Yeah, you, you couldn't be more right about metadata. I mean, it's always been important to know who owns what, but you know, wrong metadata when it happened at the album level and there were just a limited number of suppliers, it was sort of easier to straighten that out, as you say. One of the side effects of disintermediation and having all these different ways people enter the ecosystem now, I mean, in some ways, that's great, right? There's so many different ways where you still have labels, you still need labels, they still provide a, a very important service to the industry, but there are people who choose to forego a label, they have other ways of coming in, and you have distributors, and you have DIY stuff, and that's, you know, that's great and exciting and makes for a very thriving entry place for creators, but it makes the ownership questions so dispersed. And when you're dealing with billions and billions or trillions of performances a day and micro pennies, it's got to, you need an efficient way to distribute that or else the distribution itself could eat up all the revenue, right? Mm -hmm. So metadata has never been the sexy part of the industry and people didn't even used to think about it that much, but it's like a luggage tag on your luggage, right? I mean, you're, if you lose your luggage, it somehow needs to work its way to you, and that's what metadata does. It helps the money get to the right party. So we've been working for years on building what, what we believe is probably the best sound recording database in the world, sourced directly from recording owners, and you know we're up to 35 million, something like that, verified sound recordings, most of them with the unique ISRCs, and we are trying to move the world in that direction where ISRCs, ISWCs, even ISNI, which is a new ISO standard that's being used to identify creators, we're trying to push all of these standardized systems so that whatever company or whatever actor in the industry, big or small, you know, they're all talking the same language and they all know who owns what. We're not there yet, but we're definitely moving that direction. Absolutely. And I'm, we're not going to go there, but I just want to say, because <laughs> I like to say this every now and then, whatever technology we have coming down the pike, and you know, a lot of people have been yakking about blockchain for a couple of years now, yep. whatever technology it is, none of it matters if you don't, as an artist, keep your information up to date. It's your job to make it possible for people to find you. And you are so right. And look, blockchain is intriguing. We are, you know, sort of agnostic on blockchain. If it turns out to be the great solution that some people hope it is, great. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll embrace it. The whole point of technology is to make all the other more important substantive things work better and more accurately. So, but you are so right, as always, Portia, <laughs> that the best technology, if you put crap in, it, it's, or, or nothing at all in, and it's just a blank field, it's not going to do you any good at all. Exactly. And it's, it's difficult. I know when artists sign up for sound exchange, you know, and we're asking for sort of the repertoire going back, we'll have some of it just through other sources, but who, who better will know that than the performer themselves, right? Exactly. Or who better would know that than the label themselves. And our religion is the rights owner is the one that has the most accurate metadata, right? So if, if a rights owner tells us they own something, 
we will take that over some third party or crowdsourced source. And then if we find a discrepancy, we don't fix it ourselves. We go back to the rights owner. We you know, have them fix it and then it closes the data loop and you have the virtuous data loop where everyone's talking about the same metadata for a given track. Exactly. And that's really how everything should be. You know, If it all started out that way, <laughs> how great would it be if everybody left the studio knowing exactly who owned what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had that exact experience where I was thinking back to the, you know, the last album that I recorded. I couldn't tell you the name of the guy who engineered it. Right. And because it's 25 years ago, I don't remember. Right. And it's, you know, you never think when it's happening that you really need to know it, but you do, especially nowadays. And I think I'm hoping there's one message that young artists are taking these days. It's that, you know, while you're in the studio, write everything down because your metadata is going to be your most powerful tool for making money. Right. And I recognize that's not how the creative process works, right? <laughs> and when people gather in a studio to do, to, you know, cut a track or when they're in a song, in a room doing songwriting, the creative process doesn't necessarily include you know, swapping splits yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> before they write. Yeah. So, you know, we don't want to interfere with the creative process. And I recognize there's a certain amount of, you know, well, what happens in the real world going on here? But, but you can't think about it too much after the fact or else these things are going to get lost. Absolutely. And as there are more and more sources of revenue, and sometimes, you know, some, it's not just a label anymore, right? When it was a sales-driven model, so much of the revenue went through the label and the label could organize everything. But now you have... Sometimes a, an owner might give some things to a distributor, but keep some of the rights themselves, and they maybe get some, maybe getting those rights directly from some third parties. You have some cases where performers get things directly from an organization, like like Sound Exchange. You know, if we get a dollar from Sirius XM, fifty cents goes to the label, and fifty cents goes directly to, to the performer, as opposed to a sales model where it all goes through the label, and the label is the only one who has to keep track of all that. So. It's important across the board for everyone that participates in a recording. Absolutely. Well, Mike Huppy is the president and CEO of Sound Exchange. Mike, thanks so much. We always love having you on the show. Always a pleasure speaking with you. And thanks for trying to educate everyone out there about what's going on and help us all move the industry to a better place. We're excited to announce our new podcast series about Bratmobile's Potty Mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can check it out wherever you get your podcasts. We're so cool, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're so cool, cool. We're so cool, yeah, yeah. You too, cool small. 25 years ago, seminal riot girl band Bratmobile released their debut album, Potty Mouth. I'm sure he told you what we paid him for recording the record. One piece of pizza and one bottle of hair dye. Along with their contemporaries in Bikini Kill and Heavens to Betsy, Molly Newman, Allison Wolf, and Aaron Smith pushed the boundaries of music and politics, challenging ideas of who could play music and hold power on stage. These Riot Girl pioneers championed self-expression and visibility for women and girls in the scene, on and off stage. You know, that the models for being a, a woman musician, in my view, and my sort of like small world view then, like not really being a punker yet, was singer-songwriters and, you know, R&B performers and artists. Yeah, it was pretty political. Like, we thought it was important to have an all-girl band and to work with other women. I think it's important for young girls to be able to see kind of images of themselves or ideas of themselves to think that they can do it too. In the early 1990s, this underground feminist punk movement seems to have been just the right idea at just the right time. 
this whole idea of Riot Girl. It was so instantaneous. It was so like everyone was was in. So there was, you know, there were records being put out. There were shows. There was girl night. It all happened within a kind of a matter of months, you know. And the media situation was it was pretty intense. They emerged into my world like such a breath of fresh air, not just a breath, but a hurricane of fresh air. On this podcast, Molly, Allison, and Aaron reflect on how the band got together, recording their first album, and the scene that inspired them. We'll also hear from their peers, journalists, and younger artists about Potty Mouth's continuing legacy. All of those bands just like completely changed my life because all of a sudden I was like, these are people who look like me and, you know, maybe like sound like me and they are like outwardly identifying as like queer. I'm not saying it sounded easy, but it sounded like accessible in a way. It's like, oh, you can just do a band with just a guitar and drums. That's so cool. This is Girl Germs, a short podcast series from Kill Rock Stars. Subscribe to this show and find out more at killrockstars.com. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Bratmobile, Horse Feathers, Wimps, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week. <laughs>